0: You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 77 is Sean Phillips. You're right now hearing the title track from his 1964 album, I'm a Loner. So he started out, as you hear here, as a folk singer. He did two albums of that. Then he went to England for the late 60s, and he has lots of stories that you're not going to hear here about his time there, hanging around with Donovan, apparently getting the moody blues into acid. He gave George Harrison a sitar lesson, and along with David Crosby, sang backup vocals on the Beatles' song Lovely Rita. So starting in 1970, he produced a series of eight albums that are tremendously eclectic, generally unclassifiable, featuring amazing musicians like the members of Herbie Hancock's band, extremely creative, and we're going to be talking about the opening track with the abbreviated title Woman from his 1971 album Second Contribution, then turning to A Christmas Song from 1972's Faces, which is perhaps his most popular album, and then to Mr. President from 1974's Furthermore. To conclude the interview, we'll talk about his more recent work. He's just released an album called Continuance, and we're going to hear two tracks off of that, Coming Round and Bach to the Fusion. For more information, please check out seanphillips.com. For more information about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoyed this interview, please see patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Finally, I want to apologize for the guest's audio quality on this one. Just stick with it. He's a fascinating guy. You'll, You'll cease to notice it quickly enough. Well, let's get to it. So I will have played a little of the I'm a loner, I'm a drifter, so we can go strictly chronologically. And I think the beginning here is going to be the hardest part because we want to make sure that we're spending most of our time talking about the music and not about the biography. But the biography is fascinating. (laughs) Okay. Is usually what you're asked about in interviews. I'll just tell you, I'll point people to some interviews elsewhere where they can hear about you hanging out with the Beatles and being friends with Brian Jones and teaching sitar to George Harrison and all that stuff. But can you say musically something about the transition between these first two albums from the 60s and what we're going to be concentrating on here today from, you know, 70, 71 on. The transition from the folk to the uncategorizable that we're going to hear here.
1: My dad gave me an old Stella guitar when I was six years old, and I drove him absolutely nuts for about a year with E minor and A minor. And we traveled a lot. My father was an author that always wrote on location. So in that traveling, I heard a myriad of musical cultures and they started building up in my mind. And, uh, when I got back to Texas, of course, I went through the roots of uh, everything and gradually got into folk music. And it just started to evolve. I continued with folk and it started edging towards maybe folk rock around the uh, 62, 63 after I got out of the Navy and then I went to England and I met Paul Buckmaster and J. Peter Robinson and these guys turned me on to the people that are the pioneers of musical composition today. Uh, People like Georgi Ligeti, the composer who wrote the music for uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Christoph Panderecki, oratorio for Auschwitz. People like uh, Karl Heinz Stockhausen who was uh, into extraordinary electronic music. And that turned my world around and I realized that if I wanted to be a musician, what I had to do was I had to absorb. And I think all young up and coming musicians have to do this. You need to listen to every single idiom of music that exists. You need to take that in, You absorb it. And then what you need to do is in your evolution as an artist, as a musician and composer, you need to take that and you need to incorporate that in the music that you are trying to create. I think that's pretty much how the evolution worked.
0: Well, let's give the intro to the first song before we play it. The short title being Woman, the long title being She Was Waiting for Her Mother at the Station in Torino and you know I love you, baby, but it's getting too heavy to laugh, from a Second Contribution, 1971. Tell a little about where you were at with that particular album and this song, and then we'll play it in full and talk about the details.
1: A lot of that woman, the song you're talking about, was written uh, when I was in London. The song is about a woman I had a relationship with, a beautiful woman named Francesca Anis. And uh, you want to hear the story of of the title? <laughs> sure. When I was living in Italy, there was a young Italian girl named Letizia who had run away from her home in Torino. And we were like a clique of expats. There were Americans and British and French and German people. We were all hanging out in Positano. And this girl was a runaway. And I was actually living with Francesca at the time in Italy. And this girl would uh, stay at one person's house one night, and they'd feed her and take care of her. Then she'd come over to our house. She'd sleep on our couch. And then basically, we couldn't take care of this girl because none of us had any money. And we finally decided that what we had to do was send her back home. So we took what little money we had and uh, got her on an express train from Naples to Torino. And we took her to the station at 7.45 in the morning. And about 11 o'clock that night, the phone rings in the bar internazionale, and it's Letizia, And she's in absolute tears, extremely upset. And she's going, oh, I don't know what to do. Non so che deve fare la mamma non qui. my mother's not here, so forth. And at that precise moment, she saw her mother come into the train station. So she was waiting for her mother at the station in Torino, and you know we love you, baby, but it's getting too heavy to laugh. And that's how that title came about.
0: Okay, but how does that actually connect to this song? It just because those were happening at that time? It was happening at that time. I mean, I was living with Francesca,
1: and uh, it all just sort of congealed into one subject matter, if you will. That's what happened. The
2: Around your face When you see The lightning rays I know I'm very near And I can hear The thunder A woman Of perplexity A woman For eternity
3: A woman for a man
2: I'm down on my knees And I'm saying
0: So, really interesting folk structure, I think, here. And I say folk in the old timey ballad (laughs) manner. It could just be, you know, an indefinite number of verses just stretching together with an overall crescendo through the whole thing. I mean, this is not a very traditional pop structure. Can you say something about how this came together?
1: I found the guitar riff, and if you listen to the lyrics, it tells a story of a relationship. As you say, it's not the structure of a commercial song as we would know it today. It's like, man, you got to understand, some of my songs do have choruses, but the majority of them, I just want to tell a story. you got to understand, choruses are for people who didn't understand what you said the first time. So I like to try and tell a story when I'm
0: singing a song or writing a lyric. You're definitely setting a very strong mood. I was thinking this was actually a cappella at the beginning, but no, you actually, is that kettle drum? It's the booms that answer you. Is that, because it's pitched, and in fact, they're in different spots around. Yes, it's a timpani. Okay. Yep. So Paul Buckmaster is doing the string arrangements and Peter Robinson is doing most of the keys, is that right? That's correct. I think
1: they played on almost all of the 26 albums that I've made, except for the very last one. Although Pete played on almost every single CD I've made, and Paul is on everyone and The work on my latest continuance is the very last thing that Paul ever did.
0: No, yeah. I heard he passed away just in November here.
1: Yeah, Paul was literally my closest friend in the world. I mean, I Skyped with him the day before he passed. To this moment, as I'm going through my days, so forth, and time passing up, I'll see something that he and I would have taken heed of, and I just get that huge, empty feeling in my chest. I still can't believe he's gone.
0: Well, I'm glad we can show off his work here. Can you say something about, in your writing the song, and even just laying down the recording, you have the vocal from beginning to end, and you have more or less a beat, and then how exactly are the decisions being made into the strings are going to come in here and the piano is going to... Do, tell a little about this, sort of the, the relationship between the songwriting and the production process here.
1: Basically, you need to understand the way that I record my CDs. I try and find the highest caliber of musician that I can find, always. On all of my records, I've used some of the most amazing session musicians in the entire world. And the secret to all of this is don't tell them what to play. Here's the basic structure. This is my vision. Now, you put your vision and your experience as a musician on top of that. So basically, every single CD I have ever made is just a big jam to a basic structure. And I mean, you don't tell people like Alfonso Johnson or Leland Starr how to play the bass. That's all there is to it. The new CD, Continuance, there was not one sheet of paper at any time in the studio. And we recorded all of that in 11 days. But the, the secret is, is let those guys with their experience add to your musical experience. And when you do that, you get extraordinary music.
0: Speaking of the bass, I mean, the bass is very active in this song. For it being a jam, it's certainly the tone from moment to moment seems extremely well controlled. And I'm sure that's just a matter of very sensitive players the bass is almost the exception to that in that the bass is quite prominent in all three of these songs we're going to play that it sort of jumps out and is sort of the first thing to add a little bit of groove to what's going on you've got a very stately you know like medieval ballad kind of solo voice and things and that's the first thing here the flute and oboe parts are not the thing adding the funk here but there's by the time we're a minute and a half in yeah the bass is dancing around
1: the bass is the glue that's keeping it all together (laughs) and uh The guy that's playing the bass on that song, Woman, was a guy named Brian Rogers in England.
0: So your guitar, so many of your songs are are really still, I can picture them coming out of the kind of solo guitar folk thing that you were writing before, in that you have a more or less rhythm part, whether you're playing it on nylon string or 12 string or electric, and by the end of this, goes straight into the next song, Keep On, which I'll even put the very beginning of that as a fade-out here so people can hear that it doesn't just end. By the end of this and, and through that song, your rhythm guitar is really driving everything. In this song, you mostly keep it out, and in fact, it seems like I hear it just hitting the one every verse or so. You go, chink! And then just are silent, which is a very weird thing for an acoustic guitar to do.
1: That whole side one, uh, second contribution, was uh, deliberate like that. It, it it was meant to flow straight through, like right? all the movements uh, flow into each other. And I've done the same with continuance, the new CD. All the, all the songs flow into each other. I want the listener to have a, really an experience. Some of the stuff today, and I mean, we look at our televisions, and you have eight minutes of program, and then you have 15 minutes of advertisements. I think that does more against slowing down the attention span of people than anything else. I I just want to make a movie
0: for people's minds when I make a CD. Of course, everybody wants to put this in some sort of category, (laughs) and the time it was coming out, certainly the reason that you could get away with this on a major label is because progressive rock was in the air you know coming out of the psychedelic late 60s stuff i hear echoes here you know of this court of the crimson king and you know in terms of what a listener of this would also be a fan of although it's interesting how in that sort of situation you balance the classical elements versus the rock elements here so i notice, like when the drums come in they're playing a kit from about two minutes in but it's really just buried in one ear and it's pretty low and it isn't until another verse or two, you know, as I said, the bass is already, you know, dancing around quite actively at this point when the drums even are coming at all. So it's not until like after three minutes in that you actually have your full on funky rhythm section going. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You're not telling them what to play, but you're you're telling them here's the level of energy here, or you're just really letting them feel it out.
1: Yeah, no, I'm really letting them feel it out. We all the level of energy, it just grows as we play.
0: Well, and then of course, after the fact with engineering, you're not putting on the horn parts at the time that the band is playing together, so you can amplify the dynamics, you know, you've got heavy reverb on the vocal at the beginning, you've got these horns and the strings and things that are coming in, and also just that engineering decision to take the drums and just make them kind of low and put them on the left side, which, you know, says that yes, I trust you musicians, but still, once you've put it out there I'm going to sculpt this and make it a very coherent thing.
1: Well, once somebody like Paul has done the arrangement, then the true making of the CD happens. It actually all happens in the mix.
0: Well, let's get the second song out there so we can talk about that too. A Christmas song from Faces, 1972, the final track. We've got an actual Dixieland song here. It's a really very different feel here. Do you want to set us up with this one? The song was actually written in Icarin.
1: And when I got back, we were recording the stuff for Faces, and I wanted to do this song, but the producer that I had at the time, a guy named Jonathan Weston, he didn't wanna do it. And we were recording at Trident Studios in England, and he and the engineer, we took a break. He said, I've got a meeting, and we're gonna have some dinner. So there was a pretty fair-sized space in time there, couple and a half hours. Well, as soon as they left, I got on the phone and I called all those musicians and I said, you guys, you got to come down here. I want to get this done. The assistant engineer, he set up all the levels on the tracks and everything. And we had it all done and recorded by the time those guys got back. So uh, there wasn't really much that he could do about it. But I just wanted... I just wanted the Dixieland feel to it because Dixieland, for me, is really happy music. And the beginning where we hit that chord and I laugh—it was just so funny when that chord was just bonk—and that's how that recording came about.
2: One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's tremendous. Okay. He came in the way that good things come with the light shining in his eyes. And most people thought it was another little babe that wrinkled up his face and cried. And then one wise man, two wise men, three wise men coming from afar and the many colored men knew this was a special child, and that's why they followed that star. east and west Then he found himself in forty day and forty night. He gave a lot of love to everyone he met and he told him that the way was right. And then the people drew near, said they wanna hear what's all this Talking about And everybody loved that man so much that they wanted to laugh and shout do it doo bunch of people said he had the wrong idea so they told him to forget that thought so a secretive society came about and they were looking for the love they sought and then the people in power said we gave you an order go back and be a carpenter put the shining in his face told him he was right so they put him on a cross right there Yeah, look at your life in the right direction And be sure to look inside your head And when you get around your Christmas tree Be sure to give all you can Cause the more you're gonna give The more you're gonna get to be a woman or a gentleman And now Christmas and Easter ain't the only time That we should be that way I love all the people and I have your name And each and every single day And when you do that you feel where it's at, you feel what I'm talking around, and then the whole wide world is gonna live in peace and everybody gonna be found. Well, everybody gonna...
0: Yeah, so this is another one where see clearly how this was written in that you've got your little finger-picking guitar lick and you've got your story, and there you go. There's the song. How long would it take to compose a story kind of like this? Like I know I've heard you another other things saying, once you start on a song, you do not get up from the table, from the room until that's done. That's absolutely right. But this is very tightly crafted. Can you say a little about the process of writing lyrics like this?
1: No, there's no revision at all. I think your first insight is always the correct one when you're doing something like this. I hardly ever, ever edit once I've written it because you're correct. Once I've written the first line to a song, I don't leave the room until I've written the last line. And I do that simply because you have a given train of thought when you are writing a lyric or a poem or something like that. If you get up and say, oh, well, I gotta go have some lunch. Oh, you know, well, the minute you get up from there, you have lost that original train of thought and you will never get it back. I'd like to stay there. I find a subject matter that interests me and I just... Sit down and I get the first line and I let the rest of it channel through.
0: The puzzling thing in here, so you cut this really happy, joyful song, and I'm so glad that you did have that false start so you can capture your crazy laugh <laughs> there That really sets the mood. It's a great way to wrap up an album. But then we're doing this happy little thing and giving the interpretation of the Christmas story. And then they nailed him on a cross. Like the, the you carry it to the Christmas is about the joy part. <laughs> Easter tends to be about the somber part. Well let's just carry it all the way through and then something musically has to happen to acknowledge that you can't just simply keep going da 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 and the nail do across yeah yeah so there's this what's written as intermezzo in the online version I saw
2: he was right, so they put him on across right there.
0: Again, would that just be, leave it to the, the arranger, to Paul, maybe, to come up with something there? Or did you have even that melody right there at the time? That
1: part, when I talk about that, put him on a cross right there, the music has to
0: reflect the drama of what you just said. Which I think you set yourself an impossible task, because it really can't <laughs> reflect that drama. It does a good job in that it just changes to something else. That's not the part of the song that sticks in your head. It's effective, but it almost sounds like just something from a movie soundtrack at the time.
1: Again, Mark, all those music, I got all those guys in the studio. Okay. Again, it was just complete improvisation by what they
0: played. So even like, hey, we need a harpsichord sound to come in here. That would be their call at the time. Exactly. All right. right. That,
1: would, that, that would be there.
0: So again, structurally, it's not verse-chorus. It's that each verse has the A section and the B section and then back to the A. So it's, again, it's a more traditional song structure I mean, is that out of Dixieland or this is combining other old kind of country influences or what is going in here? Usually Dixieland is straight instrumental. It doesn't even have this kind of vocal thing.
1: In those sections where it goes free, I just wanted the musicians to play their joy. That's the only way that I wanted it to happen.
0: Even the main structure of the melody, I guess is almost like more like a children's song or something, although what I think of is that I think often is just what counted as a radio pop song in you know 1940 or something, but that you've got here's our melody, here's our melody, and now here's the B section, la 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 da 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 like very traditional song structure what do you feel like you're channeling when you write something like that it's like you're grabbing on the music of your childhood or something like that i'm not sure
1: it's almost like a child's nursery rhyme in many ways i just wanted it to be a happy tune that's pretty much the bottom line of that
0: it's got a very fast 6/8 thing i mean that's what the dixieland thing is about chack 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 but when the full on drums come in they don't do that. He treats it like it's 12 8. Just so it doesn't sound as frantic. You're just letting them feel it out. It makes it a little more accessible to the things that I'm describing here old time Dixieland and uh, children's nursery rhyme. Like those don't add up to radio friendly rock song, but yet this kind of actually is. And I think that has a lot to do with it, is how the rhythm section treats it.
1: You've described it perfectly. Yes.
0: <laughs> okay. Let's get the third song out there, and then we can discuss the overall style and summary, and the gaps between, and what happened afterward. The third one is "Mr. President" from "Furthermore." We're moving forward a few albums, 1974. Yes. Different rhythm section here. You know, a lot of the stuff on this album is extremely funky. This and the and the album after that, man, I you know the changes in style from song to song are even more extreme than had come in the previous albums. Can you say something about where you're at at this point?
1: As I say, that's that evolution. At this point, we're all listening to Weather Report and, uh, uh John McLaughlin, Mahavishnu, uh, Inner Flame. But Mr. President, the thing that's uh, important about that is the lyric. I went through this whole period of looking at different religions and everything, and I, I just went, you know, there's something, uh, that doesn't, just doesn't feel right. And it's basically, it's an anti-war song
0: and anti-violence, anti-war. It's not subtle about it. Yes, it's very, very upfront anti war.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the power of the chords just bring the, the lyric to the front.
2: The prime minister, won't you administer decrees to decrease the war? Really?
0: right, so three very distinct elements here. And again, we're coming straight out of the previous song, out of Song for Northern Ireland, another anti-war song. So this orchestral bit at the beginning is not just the intro to the song. It's more of a transition. Are you sometimes, when you're writing things like this, are you writing actual notes on a staff?
1: (laughs) Mark, I can't read or write a note of music. All right. And what you were talking about a minute ago, you were talking about the way that a song changes from 6-8 to 12-8 uh, like that. If another musician asks me to play a 6-8 time, I cannot do it. Or any other time, for that matter. I can't read or write a note of music. I had a guy... The first violinist, the Queens Orchestra, John Knight, I lamented to him uh, years ago that I don't know how to read or write music. And he stopped me dead and he said, listen, man, I spent 21 years learning music and I'm doing everything I possibly can right now to forget everything I have ever learned so that I can write an original melody. At that point, I just gave it up. I just went, okay, I'm just going to go with my gut and what channel's through. I just go with what I'm feeling at the time.
0: But as a practical matter, if you're writing something in your kitchen and you're not going to record it for some time later, there has to be some way that if you come up with da, 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 you know, you don't have your phone that you can record it on right there in 1974. So is it that those instrumental things actually are Paul's that he's coming up with at the time or that you're coming up with together, you're singing it at, at him, or do you just have the sort of memory that like, once you have the lyrics down on paper, then all the other melodic stuff will more or less stick in your head, even if it's not a section where you're playing guitar over?
1: No, actually, on that song, on uh, Mr. President, that's not Paul, that's J.P. Robinson's arrangement. Oh, okay. That's, that's Pete's arrangement on that one, because we, we wanted to hear brass on that. That's what Pete heard when he was playing that.
0: There's a lot of keyboards here. So it's him and Ann O'Dell are splitting the keyboard duties on this. And Paul's in there too, playing cello. And an amazing rhythm section here, John Gustafson, again, very bass-driven. And Barry D'Souza, his work on drums, is just crazy good on these. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, he was an extraordinary player. If somebody asked me, "What is what do you sound like? What is your style? With this one, I can almost point, just pointing at the main verses, that it's kind of Elton John-ish, just the way that you're doing the melody. It's a very catchy melody. It's prominent piano parts, even though that's not you playing the piano. And of course, Elton John also had that kind of strings, at least on some of his early stuff.
1: I'm sorry, but Pearl is responsible for Elton John's success. Pearl wrote (laughs) the first nine albums that Elton did. And when I say wrote it, I mean from the kick drum to the last violin. There was no improvisation whatsoever in those albums. They played what Paul wrote down,
0: note for note. He just never really got the credit for all that, I feel. Well I'm very glad to hear that here When we get to the chorus here With this offbeat thing Any similarity to Elton John goes right away That this is a very interesting You didn't have to have that particular chord progression <laughs> Even had to have the effect of mm, cha, mm, cha, And have a tension build Like the countdown toward the button pushing That's going to launch the nuclear <laughs> bombs Right Hey
2: Mr. President I really do hope that you don't Watch your TV
0: if you don 't have the music theory, how are you writing messed up chords like this? Is this just you know finding things that your fingers are doing on the strings, or is this? the actual chords from from line to line here you know is something that maybe peter with his jazz background is adding to that
1: i try to stay away from standard chord structures one of the things i do when i'm playing when i start with a tabula Raza, if you will if i play a set of chords that i like And then I continue to mess with that for a while. If I think it even resembles vaguely something I have heard in my past uh, that I think I may have been influenced to, I just trash it immediately. The whole thing is try and write original chord structures that that are completely different from anything else. Because, again, the hardest thing for a, a musician, a composer to do is to write a melody line that you have never heard. And I try and write, uh, I try and structure my chords so that I'm able to create a melody line that you've never heard.
0: Which is an interesting way of combining that ethic with your, you know, get out of your own way, use your first thought first. You know, certainly when you were writing the uh, Christmas song melody, you know, you were not trying to like, I'm going to do something, you know, and every single melody line that is unlike anything that's ever been heard before. At least in that case, it was supposed to be catchy in that way. And I feel like this Mr. President, the verses especially, like this is why it's just one of the most appealing things. I think this was a great choice to show off what a good just pop song writer in spite of yourself you are. Because there's something just very iconic about this. Like, I don't know if it screams early 70s, because like that's one of the things that was popular at the time. It certainly sets a very definite Specific mood.
1: I don't think about eras of music. I just go with what I think sounds right at the time that I'm playing.
0: Yeah, it's only retrospectively when we're looking at your progress over albums. Like, it's not an accident that you were playing folk in the '60s, and then the progression is steadily, you know, as it was in a lot of music, where it's, I think, prog rock in 1971 is more classical influenced, whereas prog rock by 1975, at least the things that are coming to mind are either that's going to fall apart, either you know it's just going to be punk, it's not going to be prog anymore, or it really has to merge with fusion. So you definitely have that, even if that's not something that you were, I'm following the trends, like you're exactly not doing that, but yet retrospectively looking back, at least for that formative period,
1: you said it. Fusion implies exactly that. You are fusing different idioms of music together. And that's how that evolution works. And you have to do that or you just get stuck in one place. Years ago at a festival in Toronto, Edgar Winter came up to me and he said, Dude. You come from Texas. How come you got so far away from the roots? And I said, well, Edgar, because there's a whole tree above the ground. That's how you have to look at it.
0: Although, I think one of the ways that people can get into your music is... Just the fact that, you know, you sound very Texan. You have the people mentioned Willie Nelson just because you, you know, sort of have similar haircuts or something, similar, similar origins. That's one of the hooks that as long as you've got your very distinctive voice, which of course, even just the ones we played are not the same from album to album. You've got this sort of mystic thing. And then you've got a more, you're not going to listen to the song woman and think, Elton John in any way, like maybe Elton John's first album, just because of the Buckmaster thing that you mentioned in terms of orchestration, but in terms of the melodies that you're writing, you know, that's so Baroque. Although one of the points that jumps out at that is, is the oh, woman of the
3: land,
0: that when, when you hit the land, like, oh, The Texan is coming out now, and it really, it's like an extra dynamic there. It's not getting louder, but it's getting more in your face in some Texan way. I don't know. (laughs)
1: That's the way the melody line is taking you. That's
0: it. Yeah, I mean, it's the melody line, but it's also just the way that you're kind of choosing to express it from moment to moment. I guess we've had a little bit of the scat singing in the Christmas song which that's been one of the things that's been taken to (laughs) extremes in some of your songs, which is interesting given that you could just ask a trumpet to do that. You have all these amazing musicians.
1: That's true, but I don't play the trumpet, so I try and do it with my voice. Throughout the history of the CDs I've made, in almost all of them, I try and do a little bit of voice instrumentation in there. That's carried all the way through. I've also done that on the new CD. You know what that is? Basically, that's just an expression of a joy of making this music. That's what that scat is.
0: Sure. I searched around for a long time because I'm also a, you know, rhythm guitarist, singer for the most part, but was trying to find for a live unit. Like, can I play kazoo? Can I have a special microphone that goes through distortion? There must be some way. Cause I've been listening to a lot of jazz, listening to really having these Miles Davis trumpet things in my head, but I don't feel the confidence in my voice that you do to just simply go, you know, just to, to sail off into the stratosphere that way.
1: As you're talking about that, one of the things that happens are some of the high voices that I've done, which uh, it's difficult today because there is no turning back age. One of the things is I would hear that in my, I would hear those high voices in my head, but I would never actually sing them until I felt that the musculature, that I could manifest it in the muscles of the vocal. I would hear it in my head, but I wouldn't actually try and sing it for the longest time. And then one day I'd just like blurt it out and uh, it would come out. And uh, that's the way that would happen.
0: And did that meet your satisfaction consistently? Or were there times where Paul or Peter would hear something and just like, can I just make that into oboes or so? You know, were there any kind of swapping that out?
1: Yes. Occasionally they would hear that. Paul would take something of a melody line. Maybe if I had sung it on the recording, we would take the vocal away and he would add like a horn line doing that or something like that. Yes, sometimes.
0: Sure. Let's listen just uh, to the end, the very end of Mr. President here. So that chord that you end on, yeah, tell me about
1: that. It's an F sharp minor. If you play guitar, it's just a, an F sharp with the E and the A and the D held down, and all the other strings
0: are open. But just about that as a dramatic gesture, that you're, you know, you've got this very major key, and now we're going to, now we're entering. Like, it really almost seems like a stage production. You're casting, the spotlight is changed to blue or something. So the next song, Talking in the Garden. It sets up the next one perfectly. Again, Mark, that's just uh, attempting to put drama into music. All right, so before we play the last song, which are you okay with, Come On Round, as the selection from the new...
1: Actually, if you don't mind, what I'd like to do is uh, let me tell you a little bit about Come On Round. Come On Round, the lyric was written as I was driving from Port Elizabeth to Cape Town and because there's no internet out there, I had to keep pulling over. I had the chords, and I had pretty much the first verse, and I was going through it in my head as I was driving, and suddenly the rest of it just started channeling through, and I had to stop about five times to be able to write this down, and what I'd like to do is, you originally said you might like to play "Box" to the fusion. What I'd like to do is come on round, the lyric to that song, it's very strange. The strength, the power of the lyric is lost when you listen to the music. What I'd like to do is, if I could, I'd like to narrate the lyric of Come On Round. If we could close the show with Box of the Fusion, would that be okay?
0: Uh, sure. By all means, let's include both. Give us the transition a little bit. So you've got one label that you have your folk stuff on, you have your other label that is up through the one after Furthermore, and then you've got your late 70s stuff on another major label, which none of that stuff is on CD. I I heard a lot of it on YouTube. One album in the 80s, which sounds, again, you're not paying attention to era, but the two albums from the 80s just because the technology you're using are very obviously from the eighties. Then we have a, a quite a long pause with just, you know, a thing here and there, one thing in the nineties until just a handful of years ago where you really kicked it off again and seemed to be going full bore. Can you say something about that gap and sort of how the career was going in terms of was it getting kicked off the label or have you been just producing music at a constant rate, but it just isn't getting so that people can hear it?
1: It's just getting so people can hear it.
0: I mean, there was a period uh, from 1994
1: all the way through pretty much up to about 2013, if you will, where I worked in public service from about 1994 until 2003, around there. And I never actually quit writing. But the thing about it is that if I'm going to write something, I think it needs to be significant it has to do something that will affect people's lives. In other words, they hear something that I write and they go inside themselves and they say, oh, I've felt that, I know that. And Basically, I just confirm what they've already felt. And I just think, when you write a line to a song, that line, every single line, has to have multiple implications that we can think about. That's just the way I do it. And that doesn't happen. You don't factory produce that songs like that continuously. So there would be long periods where I would just wait until I felt that I had something significant to contribute.
0: Also, that points to your constant desire to advance, you know, to improve upon yourself. I had a certain period where in my late 20s through early 30s, where I produced a few albums in a row that I felt like, okay, finally I've kind of gotten, if I could just get these three albums out in a a reasonable way, I could die, and that would be okay.
1: It's back to the old thing of somebody said to Pablo Casals, the cellist, they said, man, you practice six hours a day. Why do you practice six hours a day? And he said, because I think I'm beginning to notice some improvement. (laughs) And, you know,
0: that's the kind of way that goes. Well, yeah, so let's play Come On Round here, and then you can tell us more about the story behind it. I mean, I hadn't taken extensive notes on this one other than Man, this is a fiery one, and it seems to reflect thematically exactly what you're talking about in terms of sucking the most out of life and, and really trying to create something of significance.
1: Let me go ahead and let me narrate the lyric so that your listeners can hear it, because I think the lyric, probably it's one of the most important songs on the CD. And the fact is, Come On Round is in the middle of the CD continuance to give you a rest from the rest of the CD. But anyway, this is the lyrics to Come On Round. It says, I'm one step from the graveyard, but I got both feet on the ground. And I'm so hell-bent on living, ain't nothing gonna stop me now. I'm chasing after that rainbow. I'm flying up to that cloud. I'm gonna do everything I can in this world as long as I'm allowed. So come all round. Come on, let's go downtown. Gotta dance to live, gotta learn to give. Be kind to your fellow man. Ain't nobody here immortal. If you in this, you alive. You wide awake, gotta bake a cake. Don't give nobody no jive. It ain't about being perfect. It ain't about being snide. You gotta watch your peas and Q's and toes because there ain't no place to hide. It's all about being joyous. Ain't nothing but a state of mind, like that warm and fuzzy feeling that you get when you got online. You want to live in the South Pacific. You want to live in the Arctic climes. You can live anywhere in this world if you, that you want if you flow with the changing times. It's a bit like Dr. Pepper. It's a little like sassafras. Those out of ordinary things you know that are not supposed to last. It comes and goes like sunshine. It comes and goes so fast. Those mountains and valleys that we all go through will soon become our past. But in the end, we are forever. Never will we cease to shine. We are life on earth we are filled with mirth. We are bound as a soul sublime. We are not confined by space and time. That is not who we are. We're a moment's mass through a looking glass. Then we all turn into stars. And that's it. come on round. Good luck, guys. <laughs>
3: Thing I can in this world as long as I'm allowed, to come on around, come on, let's go downtown, gotta dance to live, gotta learn to give, take time to your fellow man, so come on around, ain't nobody here immortal, if you're hearing this, you're alive, you hide awake, gotta bake a cake, don't give nobody no job. Of a state of mind like that warm and fuzzy feeling that you get when you got online. You'll live in the South Pacific, you'll live in the Arctic climes. You can live anywhere in this world if you want if you play with
0: So I see that on your website, you've got a lot of poetry as well. I mean, is there a, a good percentage of your lyrics that might just get written like that and don't actually make it to a song that they just stay as poetry? Or, or uh, is any of your poetry could eventually be made? Not just stay as poetry, yes. Ah. Uh-huh. Do you even know necessarily when you're starting something like whether it's going to be poetry for sure or lyrics? Like, would, would you just treat those fundamentally differently?
1: What happens is, the music usually comes first, Uh and then I I find this. I have a subject matter in mind that interests me, and I will try and incorporate those two. On the other hand, I will write something that I feel needs music, and then I will write something. I will write a piece of music that will uh, contribute the drama to the words that I have written. And that's the way Bernie Taupin and Elton work. Bernie would write the words, and Elton would
0: write the music. So something like a Christmas song, even you had the riff first before you would decide what this is going to be about. Do duck, do duck, do duck, do. Okay, that's even more puzzling. That you start with the Dixieland and like you know what this reminds me of. It reminds me of Christmas. (laughs) A Dixieland, and then just... (laughs) That's right. Uh Well, since we're going to talk a little more before we play the song number five here, tell me a little about, you got very spoiled in that you were on major labels, you had all these huge budgets to make albums, and now with the last couple, you've really returned to your... It seems like return to the method of, of making albums that you were using before, but it's entirely self-financed. And, I mean, how is this even possible? Is it just the whole culture has changed enough that you have relationships with these people that they'll now work for cheap, basically?
1: They don't work for cheap, I'll tell you. That. No, it was just I always wanted to have the production values that I had when I had the money from uh, the record companies. I spent about two and a half years writing continuance, and I knew this had to be, I knew this was really gonna be an extraordinary CD. Personally, I think it's the best I've ever done. Once I was offered the studio by Jord Cooper, I knew that I was gonna be able to do this, so that's when I started the Kickstarter thing, and my promise to the, uh, the donators The people who gave money to the Kickstarters was that they would give a CD, finely crafted songs with beautiful music played by extraordinary musicians. And that's exactly what they got. And I was able to maintain that standard of quality that I had when I was uh, working with the record companies.
0: And have you tried, you know, as demos or anything? You know, I know I've seen you in a live setting. You were doing a layering where you're, playing a little bass, playing a little guitar. I know you know how to program a drum machine or could pound on things. Have you tried doing a more self-contained in those off years? No, not really. I mean,
1: that's what I'm doing now. What I'm using now is a Line 6 Jam 4 Looper, and it contains waveforms of actual session drummers because I can't really afford to take a band on the road. And the other reasoning for all of what I'm doing right now, when you see a live concert, is a lot of people would love to, to see me get up there with just my red six string Gibson guitar. But I'm telling you, after all these years, you need to understand, even making music, it becomes just a job after a while. And I don't want that to happen where it becomes just a job. So I'm using technology to present myself, myself, a challenge in concert. And I love the the ability to be able to build an entire band on stage by myself. And uh, the challenge is during the concert, when you're working with that technology, the secret is you better be on one when you <laughs> start to add another layer. That presents a challenge that makes makes concerts fun for me today.
0: Yeah, well I'll send folks the link to some of those live videos that you posted a lot of video on your YouTube channel. Really great to, you know, explain more about your songwriting. I guess we've kind of come to the end here. So let's introduce Bach to the Fusion, which I think is a great example from the new album of something that's using the kind of orchestral techniques that we hear in the old music here. You know, in fact, there's not a lot of lyrics compared to every other song we've heard here. It's a big instrumental composition with a little bit of lyrics. No, there's not supposed to be a a lot of lyrics. I wanted to make a completely different
1: structure for a song. There are just two verses. And they come in the second part of Bach diffusion. the Fusion. And the other thing, one of the things on continuance is that there is, you and I both know, there is some ethereal substance to classical music that touches every heart that hears it. It is indefinable, the substance of that music. We don't know what it is, but I know the power of it. And that's why I was so extraordinarily fortunate to be introduced to Brockett Parsons. Brockett is Lady Gaga's main keyboard guy and has been for the last five years. Now, this is a woman that's a classically trained pianist, Lady Gaga is. And if she picked him to be her main keyboard guy, you know that he's got to have something going on. And I just said, Brockett, when we were making Continuance, I just said, I really want you to put your Classical history, your classical experience in this CD. And he just took it out of the park. And Bach to the Fusion is one of those that implements that. And also, one of the other tracks on there, Song for a Thief, Brockett and I, we built that entire symphony orchestra around that song. So the guy's absolutely extraordinary. But Bach to the Fusion was basically my love of Bach. So that's how that tune came about. Uh, Mixed with that that jazz fusion, the chords in the refrain of that are very strange chords. As a guitarist, the basic is uh, E to F sharp to G to B. But when I play the E to F sharp to G to B, on top of the E chord, on the second round, I'm playing a B major and then a D D flat major on top of that. And it it just really gels. It's such an amazing uh,
0: progression. All right, here's Box of the Fusion. Thank you so much for talking to me.
2: You're
1: very welcome, Mark. It's been my pleasure. I want to wish all your listeners health, love, and clarity. Thank you, Mark.
0: Thank you so much to Sean. Again, you can learn more at seanphillips.com. And if you look on the blog post associated with this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, I will put up links to Sean's recent live activity where he's layering himself via looping technology and him playing sitar for Donovan and other aspects of his songwriting that we did not really display here too much because there's a lot going on. My next episode will be with Tara Lynch, amazing heavy metal guitarist, an all-star band, even if you're not a heavy metal fan I think you'll enjoy that interview I hope you like this one by all means keep on musicin'. until next time this is Mark Linton-Meyer signing off